So the skeleton is designed to, to protect the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, pretty well, and most of the sensory organs that are in the head, nerves that are traveling through the neck, but uh, polytrauma, as in motor vehicle crashes that we talked about last time, sports injuries and falls actually do result in, in injuries to the head, neck, and spine fairly commonly. It does reflect how we face our world, so as we approach things, right, um, we lead with our face, we lead with our frontal lobe, and so those are common sites of, of injuries. What kind of functions take place in the frontal lobe of your cerebrum? Cognitive. Which kinds of cognitive? So emotions, a little bit of sensory information for olfaction, um, planning for motor movement, right? So planning for motor movement, uh, and then the precentral gyrus is all about executing that. So the reason that we associate uh, abnormal behavior, especially violent behavior with frontal lobe, and in the olden days, they used to actually cut the pathways between those emotional areas of the frontal lobe and those motor planning areas so that they couldn't translate their violent emotions into actual actions. That was a frontal lobotomy. Was that successful? It was unfortunately was very successful. Uh, no, it, it was very successful. Oh. Um, and now they just do it with drugs. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So was that a nice pitch right up through here? You just kind of mess it up a little bit? It's a little like pithing, yes. <laughs> they go up through the orbit and they just cut the, separate the frontal lobe from the rest of the motor cortex. Yeah. 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 Um, and then um, C1, C2, that level of the, uh, we do have, good, I was counting on having a skeleton here so we could actually visualize it. C1, C2, because the head, and especially true, I don't want to block anybody's view here. Okay. Um, yeah, 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 you're right, nasal trumpet, yeah. Anthony, can you still see everything? Okay, yeah, all right. Um, because the head is heavy, um, and in order to have the range of motion at the neck, all the structures are condensed into a pretty small area. The muscles are thin and strap-like. Um, uh, you have this lollipop effect. Less so, uh, bones are stronger, muscles are stronger, connective tissues are stiffer uh, as you age, but in kids especially, you really do have this kind of lollipop effect, right? Yeah. Traumatic, sorry, traumatic brain injury is the most common cause of trauma-related deaths and lifelong disability. So that brain damage results in um, impairment, uh, either cognitive, motor, or sensory. Gunshot wounds to the head, un not surprisingly, have a very high mortality rate. Motor vehicle crashes, we mentioned some of these statistics last time, um, are highest um, for males and in that young adulthood, and then especially um, TBI for those elderly people who are less able to uh, have um, uh, decreased muscle strength that's gonna protect their head, neck, and spine, um, but also may have some osteoporosis. Falls and, falls and falling objects produce really large forces, and we looked at um, a table that's from your book last time. Um, a four-foot fall can produce 1,600 pounds of force, so it doesn't take a lot. Um, we, we haven't looked at this, but if you can imagine uh, an elderly person who trips and falls, 
there's, it's not just the acceleration due to gravity, there's actually a levering action. Um, and I mean, I've seen, you know, at the level of C1, C2 fractures in elderly people who just ground level fall, but um, they lever into the ground, or worse, if they lever into the bottom step, or they lever into a piece of furniture, or they lever into the curb. Um, yeah, huge, huge forces. I was playing racquetball one time, and uh, the person I was playing against stepped on my foot while I was running, and I levered into the ground so hard. And with my racket in one hand, somehow, as I was trying to break my fall, broke my pinky with my racket. Ooh. I didn't think, huh? Your only injury? That was my only injury. It was a broken pinky, yes. He's implying that I'm elderly and I should have like popped off my head at C1, C2. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember if I won. <laughs> I doubt it. I'm pretty sure. I didn't think my finger was broken. And so I think I finished playing and then I'm like soaking it in my office in a cup of ice water and it just, yeah, it hurt so bad. And then my fingernail is kind of. Yeah. Because the racquetball courts are, are open to faculty. They have priority at noon. I can't play racquetball anymore. It just makes my neck too sore. So it's just, yeah, it's probably not wise to do anyway. Um, so, keeping up, John. <laughs> Good, okay. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, a lot of times I'll start these conversations talking a little bit about um, uh, statistics. And we mentioned the severity of injury in gunshot wounds, but, but gunshot wounds then um, account for 50% uh, of all suicide deaths. This is the most recent year that this, uh, these statistics are available, and I provided the reference down below. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, which is, which is so, so appalling to me. Um, more than 48,000 Americans died by suicide. Most of them are men. Um, there was 1.4 million suicide attempts. So those are calls that you go to. Um, uh, and then for, for, the, for 2015, the year that the uh, uh, data was available, it cost the U.S. $69 billion, suicides and suicide attempts. Yeah. Again, it's mostly men. Um, who attempt suicide and are successful. Um, firearms, as I mentioned in that title, um, more than half of the suicide deaths. Yeah. <clears throat> what surprises the uh, mortality is actually not higher for firearm suicides? It's like, what was it, 60 to 80? 70, 70, 70, 70. Yeah, well, yeah. I know how to commit suicide now. I just run into your backyard and I make some noise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you get your hands off the road. That's if you want to take Paul down with you. <laughs> um, and then some stats on motor vehicle crashes in Washington State. Again, from the most recent year that the data is available, 2018. It's changed only slightly. In 2017, it was 50-50 in terms of the... Um, uh, single vehicle versus multi-vehicle, but yeah, so more, seven million people in? No, Wyoming's population is only 500. Yeah, have you driven through Wyoming? 
Actually, Wyoming is beautiful. I, I've gone uh, from the Denver area up to Jackson, and um, it's beautiful country, and the pronghorns are like mice there. Ooh. Yeah, I know, <laughs> and they're delicious. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's beautiful country. It, there's nobody there except in the, we stopped in Laramie, and you would, I, don't, I don't know if you guys appreciate this, but we're eating breakfast. It's pretty early in the morning, uh, and we keep seeing these flatbed trailers going by with one, two, three giant elk, bull elk. And so where are they going? So I get up from the breakfast table and I walk around and directly behind the restaurant, a butcher, and they're all hanging there and they're all butchering them. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's beautiful country. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I could live there. Driving through miles and miles and miles of high desert where the, there are also miles and miles and miles of um, snow fences that are about 16 feet tall. <laughs> Makes me think that the winters are pretty miserable there. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, yeah, so a fair number of fatal crashes, about 500, and drivers plus their occupants are dying in those, in those crashes. I also think, um, you know, Washington has, it's not reflected in this, um, in this graphic, but Washington, based on observations, has about a 93 to 96% seatbelt compliance rate. So we have a really high seatbelt compliance rate in Washington state, which is good, but still more than half of the occupants of those vehicles died while restrained. And so that just reflects the speed at which people are going. Uh, in some cases, the, um, the design of the vehicle, but yeah. And then of the, say again? Probably talking to his wife. John has left. He had to get let in on a different computer, and maybe that's why his other computer doesn't isn't muted. Okay, I muted him. Yeah. Question, so, are, do these statistics reflect only like registered Washington drivers, or? Oh, we I didn't. Canadian drivers. Oh, yeah. Yes, I know. Crazy. Yeah. Years. Yeah. In Washington. Yes. Yeah. So it could be drivers from anywhere. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. the population doesn't necessarily correlate with. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Skewed numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they do estimate, I mean, the, it is, for comparison, uh, they're also looking at the miles traveled, and that's just based on observations. So we're, we're, we're photographed and filmed all the time, and not just on the roads. So, um, yeah. And so they, they use this data, and they collect it in the same way every year, just to look for trends. Not to say, you Canadians are ruining our statistics. 80% um, of the drivers killed were legally impaired with alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's important to realize that you're, when you're trying to assess LOC, 81% of your drivers, based on this statistic, might be impaired because of the alcohol on board. Are there any estimates of how many people on the road are intoxicated at any given time? Oh, I have oh, not seen that. Yeah. I mean, you could. Ex about 2%? About 2%. Wow. 
Yeah. That seems My little... kids ask questions. Why I just fucking ask? So <laughs> <laughs> he's pulling that right out of his. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Drunk driving, that's total. Yeah. Total yeah, yeah. But 81% of, of those 31% of. If you extrapolate, it's 29,565. Yeah, drunk driving. Yeah, yeah. Drunk driving, that's 30,000 deaths per year. No, no, no. No. This is the fatal crashes. This is miles traveled. No, but. What? Sorry, but yeah. the lowest. Uh, so here's what I'm doing. Oh, on the U.S. total. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. That's 30,000 per year in the U.S. Yeah. Drunk yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it is a lot less than it used to be. Yeah. So I'm showing you this um, table again because we also want to consider this not just in ground level falls, but when objects fall, right? So objects follow the same laws of, of physics. <clears throat> oh, and there is a blue question. So which area of the spinal column is most likely to be injured in a heel first fall? So we, we talked about this a couple of times on Tuesday. You're about to fall off your ladder. You're about to fall off your roof. So you turn and you jump. Where would you expect in that patient when you get on scene to have potential spinal injury? Yeah, calcaneus and lumbar. Absolutely. So. Um, uh, there's a bit of an accordion effect because those intervertebral discs are meant to take some of that force of impact. Um, so your calcaneus are likely to break, and I've seen bilateral calcaneus fractures. Um, you could, depending on strength of the musculature, um, have long bone fractures, um, but that force gets projected and gradually gets um, you know, absorbed as vertebrae compress, interior vertebral discs compress, but because of the lumbar curve, right, this is where that fracture is most likely to occur, but it, uh, I've also seen it in lower T12. Yeah, and then other fractures because the whole, the rest of the body crumples to the, to the ground. <laughs> so, when we talk about injury to especially nervous structures, brain and spinal cord, there's a couple of ways that, that um, it's described, primary and secondary injuries or direct and indirect. And you can have both, right? One or the other or both. Um, I tend to use direct and indirect. Obviously, direct trauma to the brain and spinal cord is a result of blunt or penetrating trauma. Um, so this object that's falling or object that's thrown, for example, um, follows those same laws. So depending on its mass, depending on how far it's traveling with the force of gravity, the, the force eventually applied and same kind of principles that we talked about last time, surface area over which that force is applied, is it a pinpoint, um, is it broadly applied, and then mass and, and acceleration. Indirect trauma, which we'll also talk about, um, is uh, the result of increasing intracranial pressure or any edema that increases pressure either than within the vertebral column or in the cranial vault um, and any mass-producing lesion, which could be hematoma, developing, you know, bleeding. The persons at greatest risk are the very young, 
young adults and the very old and related to behavioral choices. So I mentioned before, young adults have a brain that makes them take risks. So presumably because natural selection favored young, strong, healthy adults that would take risks that the rest of the population would not be able to, to, to do. And then that gradually changes over time. So you cannot make yourself jump off that cliff into the water anymore. And it's just so disappointing. <laughs> so disappointed in myself. I'll never get over that. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, when you're young and you're rafting in the river and there's a cliff and you jump off it, yeah, no problem. So here's a cliff at, at Lake Coeur d'Alene that I've jumped off before. I could hardly make myself do it. Uh -huh. So you get up there and you I, say, you know what? Yeah. I always thought that evolutionary pressure was to weed those people out. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're secretly mating and taking choices. So they're <laughs> making ch taking chances. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we're all here. That's why we're all here. <laughs> so behavioral choices, you know. My mantra when my kids were growing up is, very quietly, make another choice. <laughs> they, they hated it, but it made an impression. So just, just my little parenting advice. Just quietly, eye contact, make another choice. Absolutely. Okay. I think behavioral psychologists and, yeah, believe that that is true. Hmm, am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 The ability to protect the head and neck changes with age also. So we mentioned how little kids have um, weaker muscles, softer bones, and the connective tissues that support the joints, uh, and that head is bigger and heavier. Um, and the very old, you've, you've seen this, right? That you get called to a fall or maybe days later after a fall and there's head trauma, but there's no defensive wounds, right? They don't have scraped hands, they don't have bruised elbows or forearms because they're not quick enough to catch themselves or not strong enough to catch themselves before their face hits the pavement. So the very old are, are um, susceptible to that. Skull fractures are less common in children. Why is that? Because their bones are their cranium. So usually those fontanelles close and the sutures are completely formed by about two years old. Um, there's a, most of their joints are made of cartilage, which is slightly compressible, softer, deformable. So um, especially with falls, it's less common for them to develop fractures in any bone. Um, what does it mean if you do see those fontanelles and they're bulging or you see pulsations? Increasing ICP, increasing intracranial pressure. Correct. Just for fun, what is this tool? No, I thought it was a Pulaski at first. I think it's a gutter ads. Yeah. An ads is a hoe-like tool, uh, but can also chop. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, 
So direct injury again as a result of blunt or penetrating trauma, but but indirect, sorry, I'll move this out of the way again. Indirect injury to the brain and spinal cord is compromises to those things that support metabolism in those tissues. So we need cerebral blood flow, um, and that creates, a, and, and flow is always um, uh, supported by an adequate pressure gradient. You always need a gradient. Um, those neurons must do aerobic metabolism, so they have to have a constant supply of oxygen, um, and they need energy nutrients to oxidize to produce their ATP. Uh, question. Seen those new helmets that they're creating with MIPS technology in it? No. Uh, it's supposedly. Yeah. What is what is MIPS? I, I forget what it stands for. Uh huh. Um, but it supposedly kind of simulates the structure of like a bird's skull because a bird's skull is made up in like straw-like oh, okay. formation. Yeah. Because they can take harder impacts. Oh. It doesn't damage their brain like it does ours. Uh-huh. So they're making helmets out of that, like snowboarding mm. helmets, bike helmets, yeah. stuff like that. So more like the arrangement of spongy bone in a yeah, helmet, maybe? Of, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's like little hollow spaces. Yeah. All, all yeah. It yeah. To help with the impact. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you know this. Solid things just transmit that force to the next available object, right? But um, because gases are compressible, if you have air pockets of some kind, then you might be able to absorb that force more successfully. Janice, is it true that like woodpecker skulls, their tongue is wrapped around their brain? Oh, that doesn't it sound is, familiar I to me. This from, like, it is true? Really? It's always yeah, stuck that, with me, yeah. They wow. store their tongue inside their cranium. But is it for protecting? Or is it just it's because they have an especially long tongue so they can get at the bugs? It's always been my theory. I remember like my fourth grade teacher asking us that. Wow. Wow. I'm I'm gonna look that up. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So we'll talk a little bit later about auto-regulation of cerebral blood flow, but obviously you're gonna have homeostatic mechanisms involving the receptors in the carotid sinus, where the common carotid divides into internal and external carotid, to monitor pressure on the way up to the brain. So if you don't have adequate pressure to move blood from the heart up against the force of gravity to the brain, then those sensory receptors will detect that inadequate pressure and stimulate the sympathetic nervous system to increase heart rate, increase venous return, so overall we can increase cardiac output. Um, but that autoregulation is impaired as pressure in the cranium increases. So this, yes. Uh, neurogenic shock. Yes. Lice your sympathetic system. Yes. Right? So that's so that's part of it. Mm -hmm. So your carotid, they're still maybe sensing, but there's just no reaction that they yeah. can. Yeah. 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 So we'll, we'll, the sympathetic nervous system for most blood vessels is the only automatic or autonomic division of the nervous system that, that causes vasodilation, vasoconstriction. So depending on how that tissue or organ is recruited into fight or flight, you can either have vasodilation to that tissue or organ, like in skeletal muscle during fight or flight, sympathetic activation, or vasoconstriction. We want to constrict the blood vessels to the digestive organs. 
So depending on the receptor you have for norepinephrine, blood vessels will dilate or constrict when you activate the sympathetic nervous system, but the sympathetic nervous system requires access to sympathetic control centers in the brain and an intact spinal cord to send it down to the level to control, you know, for those neurons to leave the, the spinal cord and go out to those blood vessels. So if you transect the cord, you disconnect your sympathetic um, control centers from those neurons, they don't know what to do, so you have dysregulation of blood pressure in the, in the periphery especially. How is it that when someone like, gets their head like, totally lobbed off, like, yes. their lungs will kind of breathe on their own, their heart will keep on beating? I know the heart still has its own, like, but their, their lungs, like, they could have like, some respiratory effort, right? At least that was my thought. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know that you'll have spontaneous respirations if you've disconnected the cord from the pons. Really? Okay. Um, I mean, perhaps because neurons get irritated by hypoxia, anoxia, and they just start firing. So it's possible in the same way that you could get spontaneous movement of the skeleton. Um, but it's it, like a but, chicken with its head cut off kind of deal. Like, how do they keep muscle yeah, that, that's because there's a lot of central pattern generators in the spinal cord. So once you initiate, just like chewing, once you initiate the first chew, after that, chewing becomes totally reflexive and you're not thinking about, okay, right? So, so as soon as the chicken hits the ground and, and receives sensory information about my foot is contacting the ground, it just initiates that central pattern generator until, you know, the spinal cord doesn't get any more. To the spinal cord, to the spinal, oh, and back. And back. Yeah, it's, it's totally reflexive. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah. Although, I'll, you know, the, here's a mistake I made with my kids. Um, we were butchering some chickens. They were going to pluck them, uh, and uh, I suggested that they put their knee on the chicken in order to pull feathers out. And of course, it squished air out, and it made noise, and they freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awful. The other, the other bad thing is when our daughter was three and Frank had gone elk hunting and he was coming back with an elk, I just didn't think through this. And I said, your dad's coming home and he's got an elk. And so I get her up at 11 o'clock at night when he finally rolls in and the back, you know, the tailgate of the truck is down and the elk is on there wrapped in a blue tarp. And I could feel something change. <laughs> and I looked down at her and she's like, <sighs> and I went, Oh no, did you think the elk was going to be alive? Oh. <laughs> oh. 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 I know, it's horrible. Yeah, I have made some epic fails as a parent also. <laughs> so it's just. <sighs> Alrighty, we're off topic here. All right, so. Um, uh, yeah, I <laughs> know. So we'll come back to this as we talk more about indirect injuries. Let's review some head anatomy. So there is a lot going on in the head and the neck. There's a lot of nervous system anatomy. Um, don't forget the nerves that are leaving through every one of these intervertebral canals, right? These nerves carry both somatic nervous system information for conscious control over muscles and conscious sensory information, but also carry all the autonomic information. Most of the nerves that control things like breathing, 
changes in heart rate, changes in blood pressure are leaving in the cervical region, which is why you can have multiple downstream effects um, if you have injury to the nervous structures in the neck. There's a lot of vasculature, some high pressure vasculature, so carotid, common carotid, um, uh, maybe even external carotid, and some of those arteries that supply the face and the scalp. Um, and then, of course, there is really good vasculature within the cranium to support um, the, the nervous system that requires a constant supply of oxygen. And then, of course, we've got airway structures in the anterior neck as well and in the head. So not focusing just on the meninges, but there are three layers of tissues that protect the brain. The first is the scalp. Um, the scalp is pulled pretty tight over the cranium, so you get a scalp laceration. Um, two things, bleeds like crazy because every one of those hair follicles needs a really good blood supply. So scalp lacerations can, you may struggle controlling bleeding without your, what do you use now, C-locks or? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, if it's all the way through the scalp, you'll see this white wax paper-like uh, epicranial aponeurosis. Um, but, that, but your scalp can move pretty freely over that epicranial aponeurosis. Um, <laughs> I remember a drunk woman who just levered down and hit right at the edge of the curb um, and so split her forehead like almost completely across, her whole face <laughs> slid down. Whoa. Yeah, not down to her chin, but it was, you know, she couldn't open her eyes because everything was like sagging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> underneath, the, underneath the scalpel course is the cranium. Um, and this is a good design to protect the brain um, because it withstands a lot of forces as long as they're, they're applied over a relatively large area, um, not pinpoint. Um, and then underneath the brain, so the internal periosteum of that cranium is the dura mater, so very tough and adhering to the inside of the brain normally, then the arachnoid mater, and then right on the surface of the brain, the pia mater. We have two really kind of uh, sources of blood into the cranium, um, one source to support the meninges and another source to support the brain and brainstem with, you know, within the nervous system. Um, but both need a good blood supply. Blood is delivered under relatively high pressure by arteries. Looking inside the cranium, so this is the frontal bones here. Here is the um, ethmoid bone with its two perforated plates where the olfactory bulbs sit. And then this is a continuation of the bony nasal septum. This that holds the frontal lobes is called the anterior fossa. Um, then we've got a middle fossa and a posterior fossa. So depending on the direction of the force of that trauma, penetrating or blunt, um, you are in pretty good shape. If you just look at the thickness of the bone, both in the occipital and in the frontal bones, um, pretty thick, strong, can withstand a lot of, of especially blunt trauma, but the soft brain inside can move around and will run into those hard interior walls. Two things, really. Uh, one, it seems like you can knock someone out easier if you hit them in the back of the head. And two, in combat sports, it's illegal to strike someone in the back of the head, like period. Yeah. So why is it if we have more protection in the back of the head that we're 
as like humans, like in combat sports and all that, like hits to the back of the head are illegal. I think I think it, in part it might be. I mean, just I'm only guessing, but I think you. I think that's part of it. I think because it's deemed unfair. But I also I also think it's because it puts your C-spine at risk. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like the not not seeing it coming like, isn't. Isn't unfair. All's fair in love and war. You're, you're fighting and like if they're turning their, I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You're going to fight me? Yeah. 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 Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it has a lot. I think I'm guessing it has a lot to do with protecting the C spine because I think it's pretty vulnerable that way. Um, the temporal bones, right? Notice how things kind of thin out here. So those T-bone car accidents where, or, you know, or falls where you happen to land or blows to the head, um, that's where your uh, uh, cranium protects your brain less. And, and then we'll talk about the fact that because you have a fold of dura mater that roughly holds your... Um, two cerebral hemispheres in place, blows to the side, tends to tear meningeal arteries. Um, and then those arteries produce a lot of bleeding because the blood is traveling under pressure and produces a mass producing lesion that then further compromises blood flow. Um, cranial bones are fused at the sutures. Um, sutures are pretty strong. They're meant to be immovable. Um, there, there's lots of interdigitation so that they don't move, but it does represent a seam. The same is true in the facial bones that fuse during embryonic development anteriorly. Um, that's why, uh, um, just, uh, what's her name? Julia Roberts. She has that, she's so skinny, she has that seam right in there that you can see in the middle of her forehead. <laughs> um, uh, but it's also represent, those sutures represent places of weakness, right? Any place you have a seam, that's a potential weakness. Um, uh, softballs to the face and punches to the face often break the zygoma away from its attachments at the maxilla, at the frontal lobe, and at the temporal lobe. So the zygomatic arch of the temporal lobe. Isn't there some debate in the scientific community about the So there's, there are, uh, there's a potential that muscle tension, for example, can produce stresses on sutures that result in, um, you know, headaches. Um, there are some practitioners that attempt to manipulate those sutures, but I haven't, um, I mean, there's still, yeah, yeah, I've still, I, I still, um, haven't seen anything in the literature that describes them other than immovable joints. So they're, they're not meant to move as far as, yeah, they may move, but they're not meant to move. Intersacral, yeah, the coccyx especially is, is pretty rigid and immovable, um, in part because of the connective tissues, um, and in part because it's so embedded in um, in uh, musculature.
Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, here is that, in green is the dura mater. So the dura mater and the rest of the meninges, unlike the brain tissue or spinal cord tissue itself, which is also covered by these same three meninges, has a really good supply of sensory receptors. And so pain in the head, not attributed to bone pain, muscle pain, connective tissue pain, um, is more likely related to irritation of the meninges. Mm-hmm. And then uh, visceral pain in the brain versus more focal pain, or more, uh, what's the other? Somatic. Somatic pain. Yeah, yeah. What causes of those? So it's my understanding that most of the pain that is experienced within the cranium is either due to pressure on the meninges or irritation of the meninges, um, usually because of edema. So there are no sensory receptors in the brain. There may be sensory receptors associated with blood vessels that pass through the brain, but they're not nervous tissue. There are no sensory receptors in nervous tissue. So, um, so from what I understand, even migraines are related to uh, increased pressure stimulating sensory receptors associated with blood vessels. But those blood vessels are likely dilating, at least according to some neurophysiologists, uh, because of a variant of seizure activity. They think, they think migraine headaches are actually a variant of seizure activity. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had migraines not regularly, um, unless I'm under a lot of stress. Um, and then just in the last few years, I started getting ophthalmic migraines. And it makes me think they are seizure variants because it's the strangest thing ever. It's, it's, it's the colors of the rainbow, but mostly red, green, and blue. Um, jagged or swirling, and it, and, it, and it spreads, right? So it starts in one, it could be in one corner of my field of vision or it could be right in the center. I've had some that start right in the center, which means I can't see anything at all. And then it spreads. It spreads across my field of vision because I think it is uh, spreading neural activity. Yeah. It, the, interestingly, there's not a lot of pain when it first starts, so it's like, what's going on? And then I go, oh, uh, and then the pain starts later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen or heard of anybody being treated for my, or treated with Merced for migraines? Oh, no. Wow. Like how? Just in the ER. Well, the same way you treat a seizure. Yeah, we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't, but that's a that's a really good. We should try it. Yeah. Like my worst headaches ever have always been like I've been really dehydrated, like out in the sun. Yes. So I had last week I had the ER shift and I didn't drink any enough water, so that night I got this ripping headache. Yeah. How would you say that relates to increasing pressure? Yeah, I, I think that is probably a decreased production of cerebral spinal fluid and a little bit of settling of your brain. Yeah. So pulling on any of the meninges that help hold your brain in place is going to produce pain. Yeah. It does. So if you aren't good with like your breathing, you could actually like be feeding off too much carbon dioxide. If 
you're breathing too fast, and that causes vasoconstriction. Yes, so that which happens in hyperventilation yeah. syndrome, right? Yeah, so both changes in carbon dioxide, which result in changes in pH, which result in changes in potassium distribution. Uh, but the only issue is because of autoregulation for blood flow to the brain, because it's so essential, um, if you hyperventilate, blow off too much CO2, you still get reflexive vasodilation. Um, so it m might make a difference to muscle work, because we know hyperventilation syndrome affects muscle contraction. Um, but the brain is a little bit different. But if you, if you, um, if you go up to elevation where oxygen level is low, right, and as a result, uh, if you drop to, you know, below, you know, um, you know, 16% oxygen or so, you'll start breathing so rapidly to try and get enough oxygen that you'll bl blow off. You'll become hypocarbic, right, and you'll blow off too much CO2. Part of the reason you start to develop high-altitude sicknesses is because of that low CO2. You dilate uh, pulmonary arteries, for example, and you start to get pulmonary edema. You dilate cerebral arteries, and you start to get that horrible headache. Yeah. to try and not trigger that vasodilation in the cerebrum. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. less, yeah. the less car CO2 they have, the more vasoconstriction. Yes, have. exactly. Yeah, does that make sense to everybody? Because that is important, yeah. Yeah. Wait, I'm sorry. You just said that their vessels will dilate. Dilate. At altitude. Yes. And, and dilate in, in, in increasing intracranial pressure because increasing intracranial pressure when everything is going in and out in these small, small areas um, will decrease blood flow and the reflexive response is vasodilate and try to increase blood flow. But, but when, you in, when you vasodilate in this non-compliant cranial vault, you increase intracranial pressure and you just get in this vicious cycle. So by keeping carbon dioxide level low, you don't trigger that 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 feature of vasodilation. So how does that relate to hypertonic saline then? Because in hypertonic saline you're trying to take the fluid out of the all tissues. Basin, but into the vasculature. Yes. Right? Yeah. So then that's causing more vasodilation, but you're counteracting that with reducing the pressure in other areas. So you're, you're reducing the, the to, um, yeah, so you're going to be reducing the compensatory mechanisms that will try to increase heart rate. So if you have adequate blood, so you have um, primarily those baroreceptors in the aortic arch and carotid sinus. If pressure is fine here, um, then you're less likely to increase heart rate and cause vasoconstriction to raise blood pressure even further. Does that make sense? And you're trying to shrink tissues. And you're still peeing off water. Yeah, so if you increase plasma volume, your kidneys will start to try and decrease water. Yeah. Have I answered that adequately for you? I'm so confused, but if we don't need to. Okay. And so, he, but he's saying, but that's going to increase systolic blood pressure. Right, which you're trying to reduce. Right. And I, I, guess, I guess the bottom line is 
intrinsic control will take precedence over extrinsic control. So your intrinsic control over blood vessels in the brain will, will be able to compensate despite the effects of hypertonic saline on systemic and this kind of control. So it just, it's not a cure, it's a stopgap measure. Yeah, until you can fix the intracranial pressure problem. It sounds like pretty controversial. It seems like there's a lot of people who don't like hypertonic saline. Hypertonic saline? Huh. They've always talked about the fact that there tends to be a rebound, increased amount of fluid in the brain once yeah. you're on. Yeah. So if your blood volume stays high, yeah. Yeah, it's like, and, and what, what is the mechanism there? Let's say you dehydrate your, your third space, and then you dehydrate actually the cells of the brain a little bit. Yeah. By pulling all this fluid into the vasculature, you pee that off, and now you end up with maybe a little bit lower intracranial pressure for a period of time, but why does it then ultimately end up with more pressure or a rebound? I think because you're, you're treating a condition that's already present, and that important condition is hypoxia in the brain. And hypoxia always triggers local reflexive hyperemia. So remember talking about waking up in the morning and you've been sleeping on your ear? And you've cut off the blood supply to your ear. And once that's resolved, your ear just gets bright red and hot and tingly. That's reactive hyperemia. So I, th I think if you're, if you're treating what looks to be, so you see signs of increasing intracranial pressure and you treat with hypertonic saline, the hypoxia is still there. You're trying, it's a stopgap measure because you can't fix the ICP now um, and you're trying to keep it from getting worse, but the hypoxia is already there and you will get reactive hyperemia um, as soon as you restore normal blood flow. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not a neurosurgeon, so I don't know all ins and outs of this, but. But is that, is that reflex or that response to the hypoxia any worse because we gave the hypertonic saline? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, they, <clears throat> If they needed it, and you give the hypertonic saline, but they were already hypoxic up there, yeah. then they would still get increased. In yeah. I mean, I, am, I imagine that they're going, they're going to look at whether or not this is a case of polytrauma, or is this only a head injury, and that might be a decision, part of a decision tree. I mean, if you're trying to treat failing blood pressure and increasing intracranial pressure because of edema at the same time, you got to give volume. Our really our yeah. only indications now for hypertonic is like the signs of severe intracranial pressures like a blown pupil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Responsiveness. Yeah. You know, seizures. Yeah. 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 What, if, what if it, in addition to all that, if it's just a bridge to like an emergency, okay, they've got increasing you know, cranial pressure, let's give him something to shrink that yeah. minute, and then put a tube to drain. Yeah, you're trying, you're trying to avoid him, herni him or her and them herniating the brainstem before you get to the ER, before they can put in a burr hole. A yeah. 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 Like yeah. 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 But, I mean, I mean, I've heard it. Surgeons especially are always say, I wish you hadn't done that because it just made more work for me as I did this other thing. But, you know, yeah, yeah. 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 With our stroke protocol, if, if they're hypertensive over 185, yeah. to consider giving um, nitroglycerin. Yeah. Um, but to consult with night control. So we had a patient like that yeah. a couple shifts ago. Yeah. We called the ED, and he said, do not give that because it's uh, actually a protective mechanism initially, right? Because your your body's trying to perfuse that part of the brain. Right. But that's part right. of our protocol to say, like, hey, consider. Yeah. And he was like, no, we don't. Yeah. Like it. So if, if they're extremely hypertensive, 
you're thinking that their stroke is hemorrhagic, not ischemic, right? Yeah, and yeah, it ended up coming down a little bit on its own anyway, but we had yeah. the pressure of 210 yeah. over something. Yeah. We had it out and ready to give. Yeah. Because we give it for hypertensive emergency right. as well. But right. Yeah, it was just... But if, but if the cause of the stroke was their hypertension, yeah. and then you're just going to make things, yeah. But the doctor was pretty definitive, like, <clears throat> we, I don't want you to give that in any kind of, in any mm. situation. Mm -hmm. Would midazolam be a, I mean, go, uh, like a hypertensive stroke patient, would you consider giving them a little bit of Versed to maybe clean that blood pressure? What are their symptoms? Uh, say they've got a, a headache. This is the worst headache of my life. Yeah. yeah. So you're not. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give Versed. Uh, you're, you're going to bring a neurological patient in who needs a neurological exam ah. when you get there. The doctor probably won't appreciate you doing that. Because they can't assess. They can't, they, they can't do anything. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you, but you would be a little bit worried about making, yeah, so it was grand mal, it was full body, tonic clonic? No, he was, he has like, like metastasized cancer, oh, like 86 year old male, oh, yeah, hmm. Yeah, it's probably mass-producing. Yeah. But it was just amazing the drop in pressure. Like, he just chilled out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I'd be a little worried that that significant drop in pressure would actually compromise brain perfusion. But, because um, you don't know why, I mean, he, he might be seizing because of compromised blood flow in his brain. Yeah, so, but, but I'm, so he's not on hospice. Or he is. No, we asked about that, and they yeah. said no, that he was. Yeah, yeah. Though, you, I mean, you still want to treat something like that, yeah. Um, the uh, comment about, like, a little bit of Versed, like, the new protocol for a stroke um, says consider, like, if the systolic blood pressure or diastolic blood pressure is in over 185 or 110, consider meds such as nitro or angiolytics. Hmm. But that was why I asked that question. Was I guess like, maybe the doctors who have chewed me out yeah. no way wouldn't do it now. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> they still do. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it, seems, like low dose it seems reasonable that if you have someone who's super hypertensive. Yeah. Um, what about nitrous oxide? We can't give it as well. Yeah. Well, then you can't give midazolam. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what if they're not, so I think in Paul's situation, what if they're not altered to your, the best of your ability? They don't appear altered, but they are anxious because they're in a lot of pain and their blood pressure remains high. Well, midazolam wouldn't be contraindicated if they're altered with the CBA. Because mm. the only, only contraindication for midazolam is hypersensitivity to benzos. Mm -hmm. So, crossing, I think. Right? Yeah. E except for the potential to, to further alter them, right? Yeah. Altered, 
they're complaining about pain, they're not doing it in a very coherent manner, right? Mm. right. And so you need to hurry up to the hospital. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of the patients I think you just have to push your empathy aside a little bit and leave them in pain somewhat. Yeah. It's, it's not like a shoulder. I mean, yeah. the brain needs to be examined when they get there. Yeah. And you're, you're giving them something that changes the function of the brain. And I, I guess I'd have to see the patient. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a, a patient presenting with stroke-like symptoms that had a systolic pressure of 260. <laughs> And yeah. we transported them BLS at that time because they, for whatever <laughs> reason, we consulted with medics and they weren't having like any significant enough symptoms, but the pressure was that. And Did the medics not believe your blood pressure? Oh, it was repeated multiple times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me just tell you a real quick story. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. My dad was in the hospital, and he, he, uh, he got his cabbage. He got his open-heart surgery. And afterwards, he was in a lot of pain, and they gave him some morphine. And a little while later, he said, I'm having trouble talking. And I can't really talk the way he was, but the gist of it was, I can't say what I want to say. Mm. And so I got the doctor in there and looked at him and said, is this from the morphine? And the doctor looked while and goes, yeah, I think so. But it was a stroke. Yeah. And so adding psychoactive drugs to, to a neurological condition really muddies the water. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I just want to reiterate because I think it was a really good point and it's something that we could hang on to. It's not like a shoulder where your assessment is imaging, right? A little bit of does this hurt, can you move it spontaneously? But the, really, the only way to assess brain injury or spinal cord injury is to interact with the patient. The patient has to be able to sense, to produce movement, and to, to have enough cognitive function to report changes, because they they're the only ones that can, can really evaluate a change in function in their nervous system. You can't look at it and really, even with the imaging that we have, you can only suppose, well, this might affect this, right? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking maybe they could do like contrast scanning in the brain, like with like the blood like flow. Functional PET scans? Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, whatever, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, they could do a scan for hemorrhage, but then they could do like inject dyes and see if there's blockages. So that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like if they couldn't do a, you know, good like, mental exam, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that's good for relatively large areas, but not for for assessing microcirculation and yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to have that protocol be a little bit better defined. The black and white version. If I saw high blood pressure, a little bit of stroke, I'd be like, all right, draw me up some Versed, give a squirt of nitro, and none of that says. I mean, it says discuss with night control, but it doesn't say before you give it. Yeah. And the, and the other thing that, that so comes to mind, if, if, what you're, if what you're attempting to treat is anxiety, um, the emotional response to pain, the fear um, in thinking about Versed, are there other ways to reduce anxiety, reduce pain, make them feel more comfortable as you prepare them for transport? So are there other ways to, <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> to do that without without meds. Turn the lights down low. Yeah. This is yeah. New. This is new in the protocol. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. This is going to be new for most paramedics. Hold their hand, right? Yeah. I've never treated with Versed because I thought someone had a stroke. So that will be new for most of your preceptors. Most of your medics will not be prepared to have you say, hey, I want to get Versed to this person who's hypertensive right now and having a stroke. Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to be more like, Joe, let's go quickly to the hospital and let the doctors evaluate and make those decisions mm -hmm. because of the idea of maybe changing their level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. with, all, with all that being said, the author of those protocols is your I think this is a good time to take a break. Okay. One last thing before we move from this is John back. Yeah. Okay. Um, one last thing before um, we move on. Your book makes a point several times um, that there are three volumes in the cranium that you have to be concerned about when thinking about changes in intracranial pressure. Um, there's the volume of the brain itself. There's the volume of the CSF, which adds about 10% of the total volume, and then the volume of the blood. But I would also remind you that Tissue fluid is another volume, and if you if you have edema develop, one of those uh, indirect sources of indirect injury to the brain, that's another volume to, to be considered as well. What's the role of cerebral spinal fluid? Not supply of nutrients and oxygen. And that's the reason why I asked this question. So it is for cushioning, and it's for cushioning really only. Yeah. Um, the brain has a really good blood supply, good capillary network within the brain and spinal cord. Um, CSF is just surrounds the brain and spinal cord in the subarachnoid space and floats the brain and spinal cord in their respective cavities. It does have uh, receptors, right? Is it the CO2? So there are neurons that serve as um, CO2 slash pH receptors in the respiratory center, but and so they're looking at so there is there are gases in CSF, but not to support metabolism. So CO2 from CSF is used by those neurons acting as receptors to drive respiratory movements. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so see, um, we're not showing it here. What, what we're showing in this figure is that after you produce uh, cerebral spinal fluid is returned to blood in the dural sinuses that are draining away from the head at arachnoid villi. But you make CSF um, at networks of capillaries, so these kind of frilly networks of capillaries that project into the ventricles of the brain. Um, so here's the fourth ventricle, here's the third ventricle, and in both lateral ventricles. So when blood travels to the choroid plexuses, these networks of, brain, of uh, blood vessels, pressure forces water, dissolved gases, um, just the tiniest amounts of glucose um, into that CSF, but but be, so that it is measurable, you can measure glucose, and changes in glucose level might indicate an infection uh, within the cerebral spinal fluid. But that CO2 just diffuses out of the blood, so equals plasma CO2. And that's why it's reasonable for neurons to look at CSF CO2, because it's there by diffusion, it equals plasma CO2, and we'll use that information to drive respiratory movements. Gotcha. And therefore, same as pH, 
pH. Yeah, pH varies directly with CO2, exactly. And so those, those neurons use CO2 to generate hydrogen ions using carbonic anhydrase, and it's actually the hydrogen ions that, that are responsible for respiratory drive. Mm. Yeah. And Janice, you said when the cerebral spinal fluid is being reabsorbed back into the big girl sinus, yeah. that is happening because it's starting to look old, or, I mean, why would it go out there but in in a different spot if all the yeah. pressures are relatively similar? Yeah, so this blood, not super high pressure, but under pressure, and that water filters out of those porous capillaries due to the pressure gradient. It's that pressure gradient. If you're always producing cerebral spinal fluid at these locations, it will force flow around the spinal cord, around the brain. And the reason these arachnoid granulations or arachnoid villi are points where CSF is returned to the blood is because the venous blood draining out of the cranium in these large dural sinuses is at lower pressure. So it's just pressure gradients. Yeah, yeah. And when you have someone that has the like the tubes at the back of their neck yeah. because they have excessive pressure uh, in their brain from their cerebral spinal fluid. That suggests that those villi at the at that big sinus there yes. are not effective at getting rid of their... Right. And so those villi can get clogged. They can get clogged with proteins. They can get clogged with blood. And then you can't um, uh, remove your CSF. So that could be a cause of... Um, increasing intracranial pressure. Um, most of the time you hear of hydrocephalus in newborns before their mismatch of CSF production and CSF return is diagnosed. This is why they keep measuring the circumference of heads at every uh, uh, well check. Um, make sure that the cranium is not growing faster than predicted, which might mean hydrocephalus, and then they would get that shunt, usually. Um, later, you know, you can have hydrocephalus and, and increasing intracranial pressure. So infants don't get increasing intracranial pressure because their sutures haven't fused yet, and their head will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but once your sutures are fused, if you don't balance that CSF return with CSF production, then it just increases intracranial pressure. Um, pardon me? Oh, <laughs> Um, but, but so it could be because the shunt gets clogged, because the shunt does get clogged every once in a while, and, and a lot of times the patients who have a clogged shunt, it's happened to them before, they know what's going on. Um, uh, but it can also happen because there's been some kind of bleeding in the brain, that blood got into the CSF, which usually contains no free blood, and that blood clogs or clotting factors block those arachnoid villi, and then you get a sudden increase in intracranial pressure. So you produce about 200 mils of CSF a day, so intracranial pressure can build really rapidly if it's not removed as rapidly. What's the normal total volume of CSF? And then also... <laughs> I don't know. Oh, Google okay. that shit. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> for people who have uh, given birth and had a spinal... Uh, yeah, an, epi an epidural? Given, yeah. They, a lot of times there's headaches associated with a leakage of spinal fluid and same thing with like a dehydration headache type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just one point of clarification. I don't have a picture to show you, but an epidural should not go through any of the meninges, should stay above the dura mater. The difference in the um, spinal cord versus the cranium is the dura mater, still shown green here, is not adhering to the bone in the vertebral column. So the idea is to go 
low enough, because we only want to numb the part around the uterus and the perineum, low enough and apply anesthetic. It's usually a long-acting anesthetic like um, bupivacaine, which do you, do you carry? Uh, okay. Um, uh, and it diffuses across the meninges to numb um, just the sensory fibers on that, on that dorsal side of the cord, so never through. But on occasion, they make a mistake, and if you nick the dura mater, if you go through the dura mater, because the arachnoid, remember talking about the inverted shag carpet? Mm -hmm. If you go through the dura, which is right next to that portion of the arachnoid, you probably go into the subarachnoid space. And, that's where that's and then CSF leaks out. And then you have a blood patch. They, if they know, so if a, if a person who's had an epidural for, you know, delivery or their hernia repair or something like that, and they develop what looks like a spinal headache, then they'll go back in and try and cause enough damage to form a blood patch. So it quits leaking. Dural sinuses, as I mentioned before, this is where CSF is returned to the blood. So you use arterial blood to filter out the CSF, but you return it to an uneven lower pressure system. Blood, remember, comes into the cranium through four vessels, right? The, the, after the common carotid bifurcates, it goes into the internal carotid, into the base of the cranium, and then through the vertebral arteries that travel through the transverse foramina of the cervical vertebrae. It's how you can tell a cervical vertebra from all the rest is in the transverse processes, there's a hole for the vertebral arteries. It means that if you have fractures in these cervical vertebrae, it's possible you could rupture one of those vertebral arteries and severely compromise blood flow to the brain. So you've got four vessels carrying blood under pressure to the brain, kind of like an umbrella, right? So it goes up the stem and then fans out into a big capillary network in the brain. And at the surface of the brain, the dura mater delaminates to create these venous sinuses. So a big superior sagittal sinus that drains blood right, other um, large veins that all converge at the internal jugular vein. Um, there are also blood vessels in the meninges, as we mentioned before, um, and in blue here, those, the dura mater in particular forms that partition between the cerebral hemispheres, separates the cerebellum from the cerebrum, and forms those dural sinuses. All right. Some of this we've, we've talked about before. Um, cerebrum is, and in particular, the cerebral cortex is where your conscious thought and conscious actions take place. What's the function of your cerebellum? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, the, the sinuses drain into the superior vena cava? No, into the internal jugular vein, and then eventually into, um, yeah, the subclavian, and then, depends on which side you're at, right? Because you got the innominator, the, yeah, a brachiocephalic. So when we see JV, so when you see JVD, you're, you're seeing the external jugular vein, which travels over the top of the sternocleidomastoid. Have you talked about putting in IJs yet? No. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later because we we'll talk. Do you don't do IJs at all anymore? Do EJs. EJ. Oh, EJ. Okay. EJ. Okay. Since we got IOs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We transported a thinner gal uh, last trip, and she had, if you could see all of the anatomy in her neck, she just had no neck fat. Yeah. And looking at the, like, sternocleidomastoid and uh, yeah. the veins running in and around, it was just incredible. Yeah. Uh, wow, you have no neck fat. <laughs> wow, you have no neck no, fat. Yeah, you can, you can, you know, if you relax it, you can grab yours, right? Yeah, you can grab yours. 
Yeah, and then, and then you can go all the way down to the sternal head, and then a little bit behind it would be the clavicular head. Yeah, right here. Yeah, if you can. Yeah, yeah. You got about a finger's width between the two origins of the sternocleidomastoid, and that's where your IJ would go. Um, so, what are the functions of the cerebellum? So, balance and coordination. So, the cerebellum receives all kinds of information from sensory organs, somatic sensory information, so touch and pressure. Um, visual information, information from the inner ear, the vestibular apparatus, the semicircular canals and so forth, um, and information from muscles and joints about movement, position of limbs in space and things like that. So this is, this is another little brain but completely unconscious that takes all kinds of sensory information and modifies, so sends information back towards the spinal cord as you're voluntarily sending impulses to move to make sure that those movements are appropriate. Um, they don't have it labeled here, but up above the medulla is the pons. What's significant about the pons? Respiratory centers that change the rate and depth of breathing. It's also a significant part of the reticular activating system, so it helps keep you alert. Janice, could you just uh, briefly go uh, over the brainstem, like from the top down? So in this picture, we can't see the top of the brainstem. And I'm not sure if I have one that's going to show it. Um, no. Um, maybe here. This is a little bit different view, so ignore the epidural hematoma here. Uh, and you're looking... Yeah. Um, so here's the two cerebral hemispheres. Here's a fold of the dura mater separating those cerebral hemispheres. Here's a dural sinus. Here's a dural sinus here. Um, this is the third ventricle, and on either side here is the thalamus. And the thalamus... There's got to be. Here we go. Here's the thalamus, right? The thalamus is the upper part of the brain stem. So still unconscious, although we're at that point in the upper levels of the reticular activating system where if sensory impulses are getting to the thalamus, which is the, the most important relay station for sensory information. So from the thalamus, visual information goes to the occipital lobe. From the thalamus, pain information goes to the parietal lobe. Um, if sensory information gets to the thalamus but is not allowed to go to the cortex or so your reticular activating system says, uh-uh, we're not going to wake up the cortex, your patient may still go, uh, right, if the thalamus is still intact. So you know everything all the way up to the thalamus, medulla, pons, you know, you're not likely to see compromises to respiratory drive and things like that if they respond in some way to painful stimuli. If they grab your hand, then... It's going all the way up to the cortex, sending information to the frontal lobe to plan for motor movement, then execute that motor movement. They grab their hand, and even if their eyes never open and they're not verbal, they're processing all the way up to the top. Yep. So, if they grab your hand as you're doing a sternal rub, they're completely conscious. If they posture, if they do that, I mean, they, they're, they're conscious enough. I mean, that tells me this is formulating a plan to move and executing the movement. That is all the way up to the top. Yeah. If they just groan uh, or they posture, <laughs> that's not a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, in response to Paul's question, the brainstem at the top is the thalamus, the relay station for sensory information that then allows you to make a conscious response if it goes all the way to the cortex. So this is kind of the gatekeeper here in terms of level in the brainstem. Um, brainstem then includes the hypothalamus, the main uh, area of control centers for a numerous homeostatic, homeostatic mechanisms and um, really the origin of a lot of sympathetic responses. It also controls everything that the pituitary does. So all the hormones released from the pituitary um, are controlled in one way or another by the hypothalamus. So that hypothalamus is that important link between the nervous system and the endocrine system. Um, below the, here in, the, in the, the top part of the brainstem, which is still forebrain, we enter into the midbrain. And it's just this small region here around the cerebral aqueduct. Um, and it's still reflexive, right? Anything conscious has to happen in the cerebrum and specifically the cerebral cortex. Um, reflex centers here are visual and auditory reflexes, so protecting um, eyes and, and hearing. Um, and then the hindbrain includes the pons. The what brain? The hindbrain, the, yeah, the bottom of the brainstem. So the base of the brainstem. Um, includes the pons, which has an important respiratory center, still part of the reticular activating system, and the medulla, which is the basement of the brainstem, and so the basic reflexes to maintain life. So cardiac center, vasomotor center, um, and, and, and yeah, gag, vomiting, coughing, all those protective reflexes are in the medulla. So the, can I just write the base of the, base of the stem is the medulla? Is the medulla. And so, you know, even though the, I mean, the medulla looks an awful lot like spinal cord and the nerves that leave the, the medulla um, innervate skeletal muscles, but innervate um, uh, visceral organs as well. So, I mean, if you didn't have the cranium and specifically the foramen magnum to say, where does brain end and spinal cord begin? You may not choose the medulla, right? It just happens to be just inside the cranium above the foramen magnum. But as a, a place that has these very essential protective reflexes, if you have increasing intracranial pressure and you start to herniate the brainstem, it's the medulla that's going to be impacted first. So you're first going to compromise circulation of the medulla to those reflex centers. And you're going to see strange patterns in breathing, for example. You'll see chain Stokes breathing. You'll see the inability to, to compensate for blood pressure changes and things like that. Yeah, my, that was my question because uh, your main respiratory center is in the, in the pons, but the medulla does have like a, a lower level of so, so I, I, even though it's basic, I would say those reflex centers in the medulla and including respiration is more important than the levels at the pons. So if for some reason the pons is not working correctly, you will still have rhythmic tidal breathing, but you won't be able to change the rate or depth of that breathing. So that, that provides your intrinsic rate and depth of breathing, and then the pons centers modify that intrinsic rate and depth. Does that answer your question about brainstem? Yeah, and then just one more. So after the medulla, then that's just the spinal cord. Spinal cord. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, so like the spinal cord, the medulla is involved in a lot of spinal reflexes, right? But we'd call them brainstem re reflexes because it's above the frame and magnum. Um, 
but the nerves, and there's a number of nerves that leave from the brain stem, um, still carry motor and sensory information, some of it somatic, uh, skeletal muscles that move the eye, for example, um, blink, you know, chewing actions, um, as well as controlling visceral functions like tearing and things like that, changes in blood pressure or blood vessel diameter. There are 12 pairs of cranial nerves. There's really only one, probably, um, that you'll look for compromises to um, in trauma. But we'll kind of run through the important things. I think this picture is helpful um, because it just shows you how small these openings are. These are bony openings. You can't, they're non-compliant. So if there's anything that's compressing on the tissues as they travel through these um, openings in the cranium, it's going to compromise their function. Um, and I also point out again this perforated plate where the olfactory bulbs sit um, in the ethmoid, which is a very thin, fragile bone. And a lot of times when trauma comes to the face and impacts the nasal bones, it will also, and, and the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid, it can compromise this floor of the anterior fossa and compromise olfaction. So a lot of people with facial trauma lose their sense of smell permanently. So steering wheel to the nose kind of thing before airbags, um, baseballs, punches, and things like that, often they'll, they'll lose their, their sense of smell. Yes, because smell contributes to the perception of taste. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So in that middle fossa, guarded by the relatively thin, and again, you see it here. Um, so these side impact, blunt or penetrating trauma to the cranium, um, just can have more, uh, increase the chances of serious injury, but also um, more bleeding, more um, threats to um, overall intracranial pressure. And this right here, this little opening here, is where the third cranial nerve passes through. So you've got 12 pairs of cranial nerves, so 12 on each side. They're passing through a variety of holes in the cranium. Um, uh, if you have damage here and increasing intracranial pressure, it might impact the third cranial nerve, the ocular motor nerve. And what are you going to see on that same side? Blown people. Mm -hmm. Is it also responsible for nystagmus, or is that a different? Yeah. So, so I think, I think I have a question similar to that on the slide. So, what is nystagmus? Uh, eye twitching. Eye twitching, and you may see it when they're looking straight at you, and that's not a good sign. But you may only see it if you ask them to hold their head still, follow your your finger to the side. You may only see it when the eyes are. Um, yeah, you saw rotary nystagmus, yeah. So um, because it's skeletal muscles that control the movement of the eye, um, this is somatic nervous system involving the cerebellum. So it could be a cerebellar insult. Uh, so you, you can infarct the, cere the cerebellum, change function, um, be unable to control skeletal muscles for walking, but also be unable to control the skeletal muscles for the, for the um, muscles that move the eye. Um, but uh, nystagmus can also happen uh, because, I think I have a better picture a little bit someplace. Yeah, because in the bony labyrinth, so this is all where the structures of um, the inner ear for balance are held. If you have um, 
you know, a significant, doesn't really matter where. Incre- increasing intracranial pressure won't do this. It has to be damage to the bony labyrinth and, and damage to the inner ear structures, um, which often happens inside impact blunt trauma. Um, it can give the false sense of movement. So it'll send incorrect information to the cerebellum. The cerebellum is fine, but the cerebellum thinks there's movement. So fair number of bonks to the head, either because there's a disruption in the, um, in the structures or because you knock off the otoliths. Do you remember talking about otoliths? You have little calcium carbonate crystals on the hair cells in the vestibular apparatus that detects movement. Um, and if you knock them off, these little hairs have, don't have that same kind of inertia. They're more freely movable and they'll send more signals to the cerebellum and the cerebellum will think you're moving. Yeah. Yeah, the neighbor, the neighbor um, uh, got caught by a widowmaker and had nystagmus, and I didn't know whether it was a skull fracture or, or knocked up, but he had both. Yeah, so he had nystagmus for like six months, yeah, until his brain figured out it was false, false information. Um, this picture t- shows two things. It's a little hard to see, but her pupil is a solid eight millimeters, I think. Her other pupil looks a little dilated too, but yeah. That's, that's a big pupil. Um, it also shows the difference between an epidural hematoma and a subdural hemorrhage. Um, yeah? Uh, with, sorry, the pupil. Yeah. If her left pupil is blown, that means her left. Left side. Left side. That's where the pressure is, is on the left side. Yep. That's all mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, yep. Yeah, so what you're saying is it's typical that if you have a lesion on the right side of the cerebrum, it's going to affect sensation or motor on the left side, except when it comes to the ocular motor nerve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, kind of on that same, like, won't, if it's a bad enough lead, won't the, if there's a gaze, won't it follow the bleed? So I've heard that. I've heard that. Um, I've not seen it. So until I see it, it's hard to convince me. <laughs> We yeah. feel that we saw on the same patient that we saw on the <gasps> Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So gaze towards the side of the lesion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have heard that. Okay. Um, wh- while we're looking at this picture, even though we're focusing on where the ocular motor nerve leaves, um, the epidural hematomas are usually faster evolving because this is a rupture of arteries supplying the meninges. So these produce mass producing lesions a little bit faster with more serious consequences. So shifting of brain matter. Whereas subdurals, subdurals um, usually are a result of uh, ruptures of veins under lower pressure, easier to coagulate. In fact, often these are just big clots that depending on, you know, if the elderly person is on an anticoagulant and may just continue to evolve over days or even weeks until they actually develop symptoms. And then they realize they got this big jelly-like hematoma um, in the subdural space. Um, There's a fair number of elderly people walking around with subdurals and they don't even know it. And, and um, they realized after uh, Ronald Reagan died that he had had a subdural hematoma for weeks or months. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, can you talk about, like, when you have a loss of consciousness with yeah. a head injury, yeah. what is the cause of the loss of consciousness specifically? Like, you have a sudden loss of consciousness, somebody's in an MMA fight and gets knocked out. What, R-E-S. Like, what is the cause of yeah. and then the return of yeah, so, so when you have that global loss of cortical function, it's because the reticular activating system is not waking up the cortex. 
Um, it's probably not just because, and, and um, let's see, how do I want to say this? You can have contusion of cortical brain tissues without loss of consciousness. And so you can have bleeding and you can have loss of brain function that may be permanent if you don't take, you know, watch your blood pressure over the next several weeks, right? Um, but a serious insult to the brain, which jars all kinds of structures, not just the cortex, can lead the RAS to say, we're not allowing any more sensory information up to the brain. We're not going to wake up the cortex. Cortex now cannot continue to engage in that dangerous behavior. So it's a, it's a protective mechanism. It's a protective mechanism. I wonder if it's yeah. Sensation nerve, coming in, yeah. Yeah, kind of like a governor, yeah. I shut down and I reboot, and so my body lays down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely is a, a reboot. Um, yeah, yeah, but again, I don't know what causes it to start up again. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so very briefly, we've talked mostly about the frontal lobe because a lot of times, because that's the way we face our environment, this is where injuries occur. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we've also talked about the susceptibility um, to structures beneath the temporal lobe uh, or temporal bone of the cranium to, to um, lateral forces. And in that lateral side, we've got the auditory cortex, um, we've got structures associated with the hearing apparatus. And in the parietal lobe, this is where you interpret all kinds of sensory information. Um, so that's conscious interpretation. In the back, in the occipital lobe of the brain, this is where you interpret visual information. And all of these sensory information are surrounded by association areas. So the three main types of areas and the things that uh, you, know, you pretty much assess, motor and sensory, but association is important because association allows people to make connections between things. It's exactly what the term implies. Um, so their association, most of the parietal lobe is about making associations between different stimuli and it enables understanding of language, for example. Um, in the frontal lobe, because this is planning for and executing motor movements, there's also an area of the frontal lobe just for the production of speech. So you can have two impairments to speech as a result of trauma or stroke. Um, it could be the inability to form the movements that result in speech, or you can say all kinds of things, but you can't understand speech. If you hit the back of your head, have you ever hit the back of your head? You see stars. You see light. That's the only way that the occipital lobe can interpret information arriving there. Um, and so I think we did this in class before. If you just push on your medial canthus, because you have a, the eyeball is a globe, you'll project that force to the opposite side, and your brain will see light out in your, the lateral field of view. Because stimulation of any place along that pathway can only be interpreted as light. All right. Um, so we've talked about this before. So here's a couple of examples of motor pathways arising from the precentral gyrus. And I like this picture because it reminds you that skeletal muscles are in the face, so they're going to travel through, for example, the facial nerve, the trigeminal nerve, cranial nerves. These are, it's also skeletal muscles, voluntary muscles that move the eye. Um, so high-level brainstem insults can result in changes in the face and only the face. It doesn't have to be the whole left or right side of the body, for example. And then, of course, 
even though these are the voluntary pathways, muscle tone is maintained by reflex arcs. Um, the descending pathways to skeletal muscles definitely say, you know, we want to contract that muscle, but there's also influences that say reduce muscle tone, reduce tension. And if you disconnect those inhibitory pathways by a cord insult, then over time, not immediately, right? What you see is if you disconnect the motor cortex from these pathways to skeletal muscles, you see a flaccid paralysis, no muscle tone at all. But over time, the, the reflex arc is still intact, right? and they'll get increasing and increasing and increasing muscle tone. And that's contracture. Because you've disconnected the inhibitory influences that help keep um, muscle tone within a normal range. And here's the sensory pathways that we talked about before. So sensory pathways rise up in the white matter, the dorsal part of the right white matter. This is what you're trying to numb with an epidural anesthetic. Um, so you still have motor control. You still can control blood vessels and all kinds of things, but you just don't feel anything. Um, the thalamus is the relay station because we're talking about sensation from the skin here. The thalamus is relaying it to the postcentral gyrus for perception. Oh, that's all right. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so sensation happens here, and when you ask your patient, "Can you feel me touching your toes?" You're assessing the sensory receptor, you're assessing the entire pathway, and you're assessing the cortex for sensation and their ability to respond. The thalamus is that upper portion of the RAS and the relay station for that sensory information. So if there's no response to painful stimuli, it's because the information may be reaching the thalamus but is going no further. If there's an awareness of that sensation, so there's some kind of groan but not a directed response, then their thalamus is probably functioning. But if they can identify where the stimulus is occurring, they grab at your hand, uh, they say, ow, right? Um, and they can tell you where it hurts. Um, and they can tell you how strong or the quality of that, that sensory information, then their cortex is completely awake. Oh, I don't. It was in yes. Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of nailed a bunch of the, the qualifiers. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's based on this pathway and understanding of the motor pathway. Um, but I think um, because there's distinct areas on both sides of the cerebral hemisphere for sensory and motor, you're trying to get at both of those things. But you don't ask them uh, association-like questions. But their ability to speak is a, an associative and integrative higher brain function. Mm -hmm. So if they're unable to speak, that means something or also. Well, you can understand their words, but it's a word salad. Right. Perhaps. Yeah. 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 And if it's a word salad, then that's an association area, actually a higher order area in the parietal lobe. And so for us, it's like we assign this relatively arbitrary number. Yep. Six, okay. Yep. I see a 13. Right. Dan sees a 12. Yeah. And it doesn't tell you where in that scale. Yeah. Because you guys are all highly trained. No. Yeah. You know what? I, th I I can't speak for the neurologist, but I, I'm I'm pretty sure, and I and I and I I 
this, my interpretation, I think, is reinforced by my experiences at the trauma quality assurance meetings, which I asked Becky about, and they're all being done by Zoom, and the only thing you have to do is attest to uh, HIPAA, right? And then How you can... I'm, I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> so I will, I will contact her. So she sent me a brief email, but it didn't say when the next meeting was, but they have the monthly. So I'll get more information and I'll share that with you. But, so I can't speak for a neurologist, but for you, it's a way to gauge deterioration, right? So if, if, if on scene the BLS said, well, he was talking five minutes ago and now he's a not, that's important. So then you're right because it comes in those categories and a single number without referencing categories or where the change has occurred doesn't really mean very much except to the practitioner who knows it went from a six to an eight kind of thing. Yeah. On the subject of GCS, the decorticate and decerebral posturing, like I understand the physical presentation differences to the core, yeah. away from the brain, right? Yeah, yeah. But is that at all affecting our treatment plan or like our impression of the patient overall? Like I'm thinking, oh man, they're in trouble. Yeah. Right? That's pretty I think bad. that's I think that's what you're supposed to think. Okay. But I don't think there's there's nothing in your protocols that de de delineate you do this if decerebrate and you do this if decorticate. Yeah. yeah. And and honestly, I think I've told you this before. I watched a young person, it was a drug-induced cardiac arrest with, with hypoxic brain injury, who was posturing, and I think he had decerebrate posturing, but we cooled him, and three days later, he's working on his laptop. So it's not necessarily they're done, right? When you see posturing like that, it is, it is a bad sign, but, it, but I think there's, there's hope. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome, right? Yeah. So my other question is, decorticate, decerebrate, like, is one a degeneration of another? So decorticate usually first, decerebrate, or depends on the insult, right? But decerebrate means my entire brain is not controlling my body. This is all spinal reflexes. Okay. Decorticate means we're not getting up to the cortex, and the cortex is not sending down. Okay, so yeah. I'm not getting, like, purposeful messaging about movement. Yeah, yeah. No brain, like no higher brain activity. No, no brain activity. No brain activity. Just spinal yeah. reflex. Yeah. Alright. And I mean, this might be really stupid. We have two arms. Yeah. Two possibilities. Could you get a little mishmash of decorticate with some, and then? I think I I think you would probably not call it decorticate. If it was not both, if it was not bilateral, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, definitely report, you know, excessive muscle muscle tone producing flexion or extension on one side or the other. Um, but it, it, and so decorticate and decerebrate it occurs in all four extremities. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, so we've talked a bit about the RAS. I'm looking at the time. Um, do we have any extra time? We do. Okay, all right. And so we and we've talked about assessing LOC, and it does it does follow along GCS. Um, 
and we've we've talked about these especially protective reflexes that happen in the in the brainstem. This this uh, figure also reminds you that the RAS gets, which is a diffuse set of of neuron pathways, um, gets information from the eyes, from the ears. This is why we try to get them to open their eyes and respond appropriately. This is why we we actually assess for response to verbal stimuli um, as well as pain. So we try to activate the RAS in as many ways as possible. Uh, just a quick question about uh, like the postictal thing. Yeah, in yeah. Sphere. Their eyes are open, they're kind of looking around. Yeah. Where, can you just talk a little bit about like what's going on with the RAS and all that? Yeah, so, so in the postictal phase, um, they're recovering from uh, maybe excessive heat, right? So their temperature often is up if it, if it is a, a full body tonic-clonic seizure. Um, uh, depletion in blood glucose, so sometimes their blood glucose goes really low. They haven't been ventilating well. So for those reasons, all of those neurons are trying to recover from a metabolic deficiencies in, in several areas. And it just takes time. It takes circulation. It takes, you know, exchange of gases. Um, so, I, so the RAS is trying to function, but globally the neurons are, are not prepared to do their full metabolism. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so we've mentioned this uh, uh, pathway of blood flow to the brain before, but I think this is a great picture. Show It shows the common carotids uh, coming off the aorta, although it's kind of a weird way to draw it here. Um, internal carotids join with vertebral arteries that travel up the transverse foramina of the cervical vertebrae to join in the circle of Willis. Willis! Willis! What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> so <laughs> there's the circle of Willis. Uh, circle of Willis then sends a lot of blood vessels into the brain to supply those choroid plexuses to, uh, in the basilar artery to supply pineal gland and um, uh, all kinds of things. Um, also supplies the cerebellum, ultimately in a really dense network of capillaries. So capillaries do serve the cells of the brain, the neurons of the brain, but there is an intermediary and those are the astrocytes. Astrocytes with their star-like shape and their foot-like processes kind of grasp around a capillary and lay a hand on a neuron and then they make sure that the exchange of nutrients and waste, not gases, gases diffuse, but the movement of nutrients and wastes is really controlled um, uh, because capillaries are constructed differently in nervous tissues. Same is true in the spinal cord. Instead of having big pores between the cells that make up the walls of the capillaries, those cells of the capillaries overlap and are welded together by tight junctions. So you got to have some active transport of materials in order to supply the tissue fluid um, and the neurons directly. Outflow from the cranium is through a very low pressure system. I mean, in fact, some of the, the outflow from the cranium is due to ventricular relaxation. There's a little bit of a suction effect, and then you've also got gravity. Um, the external jugular vein is what you see, right? Okay. Yep. <laughs> Lies over the top of the sternocleidomastoid. But the internal jugular vein is a deeper neck structure that then drains into the brachiocephalic, so where the subclavian vein um, reaches uh, and joins with the um, superior vena cava. Um, 
These veins, like I said, if you, you know, if there's a damage to these veins, it's relatively low pressure and easily collapsible vessels. So a little bit easier to control bleeding, but it also means that it takes very little pressure to occlude the outflow, even from the internal jugular vein, um, to occlude outflow, which then backs up pressure, right? The heart's still pumping, still pumping blood to the brain. Very little pressure can occlude the outflow. So it takes only about four pounds of pressure to block outflow. And it takes about six pounds of pressure to open up your beer can. It's not a lot of pressure at all. Um, so there's a couple of things I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring that back up because there's a couple of cautions um, and, and some important points to keep in mind. So we've talked about mean arterial pressure before. You have a different number than I do. You treat to maintain MAP of 65. And I think technically you, you require a MAP of 60 to perfuse the brain and other vital, vital organs, but we'll stick with 65. We've already mentioned that CSF and blood uh, comprise about 20% total of the volume in the, in the, within the cranium. Um, but we have very little pressure normally in the cranium and that allows uh, blood flow in and outflow through those jugular veins. Um, so you treat to maintain a map of, of 65, but it requires just a little less than that for perfusion. When you think about perfusion of the brain or cerebral perfusion pressure, it's a very simple equation. ICP, intracranial pressure, has to be less than MAP, right? Um, and there's, there's um, often not a huge difference. Um, if you have good outflow, even when your uh, MAP increases, uh, even though a healthy person's not going to increase much above 90, even if they're exercising vigorously, you have a lot of peripheral venous vasodilation, and so outflow is even better. And the increasing action of the heart just improves that suction effect. So we don't increase intracranial pressure when we're, when we're um, exercising normally, unless you're closing your glottis, right? And you're straining and your external jugular is bulging. Then you're preventing, you can feel that pressure in your head and you're preventing the outflow from the brain. Doesn't take much at all to stop the outflow from the brain. People have given themselves cerebral contusions by overstraining. So they'll have basically what looks like a concussion. Nope. Okay. Thank you. you betcha. Um, cranium is a non-compliant container, so there's no way to take up some extra pressure. So there's research on uh, the Thomas tube holders that if you don't place them correctly, and what everything that you're doing is trying to protect cerebral perfusion, if you place that tube holder or whatever you might use, and you compress on jugular veins, it only takes four pounds of pressure to occlude that. And if you just do that, I mean, I can feel increased intracranial pressure. Yeah. A chevron of tape. Yep. Nothing on the neck. And that actually, I've heard people recommend that even in EMS CPR. Is that the reason that they usually do that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, they've, I've watched in, uh, in the lab, they'll do various positions of the Thomas tube holder and they're measuring uh, pressures, intracranial pressures in pig models and it just goes way up. Yeah. What about like the, the neck strap that we use when we... Like so that, that neck strap, 
doesn't wrap around this far. It, it kind of, yeah, kind of angles out away from the neck. So I've thought about that, but I don't think so. And I, don't, I haven't seen any research on that. Yeah. And then strangulation. It's, it's surprising. Um, there's not a lot of research on it, but the research that is there, even if someone is, you know, is just pinned against the wall for a little bit, and they're not trying to occlude their airway. What people don't understand, both on the medical side, certainly in the, in the EMS side, because thankfully we don't see it very often, is this can produce concussion-like damage to the microvasculature in the brain. Just a little bit of pressure, especially bilateral pressure. Inflow is exactly the same, and they're excited because they're being attacked, right? So your systolic blood pressure goes up, but your outflow is occluded with the same four pounds of pressure. And so they get traumatic brain injury as a result of, of strangulation. So you may see, so this is trauma, right? Um, so these are marks associated with strangulation, but um, there's also other signs of blunt trauma. A lot of this is actually petechiae, all these little ruptures around hair follicles is a result of compression on the vascular system. Um, you may not see uh, a lot, certainly not as significant as that, but notice that if that is placed on the skin for a long enough period of time that this, these blood vessels get congested and you can also cause what look like strap-like. So there wasn't an, an agent, a rope, a, you know, a belt or something like that necessarily. That's just web space contusions. Um, so four pounds of pressure to occlude the jugular vein, 11 pounds of pressure to occlude the carotid artery, 30 pounds to collapse the trachea, 80 pounds uh, in a typical handshake, right? So um, anybody with any hand strength at all could definitely collapse the trachea. Yeah. <laughs> so if you compromise blood flow um, to the brain, um, you may have victims who are now conscious when you're on scene, but they do have uh, loss of bladder control, for example, or bowel control. That's not necessarily just from fear. It's because their brain stem that reflexively controls micturition, reflexively controls that internal urethral sphincter or uh, um, in the rectum, um, can't control those skeletal muscles. Mm -hmm. Is there a similar loss of that control during seizures? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, you can have, even in a young person, a carotid dissection. So you do physical damage to the carotid by applying this pressure. Um, if you're an older person, you have atherosclerotic plaques. Um, you don't even have to be older for that, right? So you could be a 45-year-old woman um, or a man, and someone strangulates you and then strangles you, and then a plaque breaks, and you form a clot, and you have a major stroke. Yeah. <laughs> Victims, yeah. Uh, when it's a victim or somebody that you want to treat, yeah. How you go about doing like taking them down, and then what are your considerations? Are you thinking probable innovation for the swelling for that area? Or what, what are your thoughts? So, in terms of preserving the the scene, yeah. Fourteen inches of rope above the knot, right? Something like eighteen, maybe. Yeah. Fourteen, eighteen. You're talking about somebody who's not going to resuscitate, right? Or 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 true, 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 true. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, fractured tracheas, laryngeal cartilages produce a ton of edema really, really fast. Um, uh, hockey pucks here, right? Those are bad. Um, yeah, yeah. Any any time. Yeah, I think I think the edema can develop so fast. So again, think about think about the tissues that you're looking at. They're bright red because the blood supply is so good. You have even a little bit of inflammation, things can close up really fast. I think that the mechanism for hanging, most people think of it as you get up on a chair, you know, with a short rope and you kick the chair out from under yourself, but really all you have to do is just uh, uh, lean into the rope. Yeah. Yep. So you don't get that, that traumatic neck-breaking thing. Right. But with the full weight of your body on it, you can certainly break the hyoid bone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the hyoid bone is the root of the tongue, and so that'll close your upper airway really fast. Yeah. yeah so a yeah. person can hang themselves without getting off the ground or not. Right. That's yeah. The, the autoerotic yeah. asphyxiation, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even yeah. If you, Yeah. Well, four pounds of pressure on the jugular and just 30 pounds of pressure on the carotid. But even if you just compress the jugular, because you reduce outflow, you're going to increase intracranial pressure. You're going to compromise blood flow every, even further. I mean, it, it doesn't take much. Yeah. With a, like a hyoid fracture, how fast is that tongue falling? And like, are you like looking pretty down, like you're looking down the road to crack? Like you're not going to be around that? Yeah, I, I mean... I would hope that you could still ultimately pull that tongue out of the way enough to intubate, but I don't know that I've ever... Joe, you've intubated hanging people before? No. It seems like most of the time they're dead by the time we get there. I've done CPR on a couple of hanging people, and I must have intubated them, but I, I don't remember it being a problem. I've, I've intubated people with fractured legs, and that was soon after the injury. Uh-huh. But if you don't get there soon, then uh, you may very well need to do a surgical airway. I would uh -huh. think. I, yeah. Do you remember if you dropped your tube size for those people, or nope. what was the mechanism? It was a uh, guy. Uh, he's an older fellow, and I think it was just an injury, an accident around the house. Yeah. So um, my son got transported off the mountain the first day of ski lessons. Um, and uh, this was a long enough ago, so this was 20-some years ago. And then he kept writing stories in grade school about, crash, 2000. Yeah, that was, it was in 2000. It was 20 years ago. Yeah. All right. Break? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All righty. So this is a fig figure from your textbook uh, talking about the vicious cycle of deterioration as increasing cranial pressure uh, continues. So you have some damage uh, to the brain within the cranial vault, um, which could be directly as a result of, of injury or it could be a secondary injury as a result of hypoxia especially. Um, causing tissue edema, that edema adds volume into that confined non-compliant space, which increases intracranial pressure even further, compromises blood flow. When neurons don't get enough sugar, don't get enough oxygen, CO2 is accumulating because you're not removing that CO2, that causes local vasodilation, right? But, but um, it uh, denies the cells of the things that they need in order to um, continue to produce ATP and function. So as cells die and they become necrotic, um, their cell content spill out, that causes more derangements in electrolyte balance, in pH balance, and causes the death of nearby cells, more edema, more intracranial pressure, um, and eventually, uh, so we, it does mention here that CO2 accumulates, because, especially because of compromised blood flow. That causes more edema, um, and the heart responds, reflexes involving cardiac output, try to push more blood into the cranium despite the poor circulation. That just exacerbates the intracranial pressure. Uh, and eventually, uh, especially the blood vessels supplying the brainstem and the medulla in particular are compromised by that edema. And so it's those basic, yeah, you're not having a lot of conscious activity in the cortex, but those basic life reflexes um, are gonna be compromised. Yeah. So what's the change in pH as CO2 accumulates? Alkaline or acidic? Acidic. Good. And so here's what that kind of looks like. As intracranial pressure increases, this is not at all in sync with this graph. This is a separate figure. But, but you'll see systolic pressure attempt to increase to restore blood flow to those compromised neurons. Um, uh, but because pressure increases out here in the periphery, pulse has to go down. So you'll see that bradycardia with increasing intracranial pressure. And as you compromise circulation to the, to the brainstem and the medulla in particular, you see this change in ventilation pattern called chain stokes. Have you ever seen it? Have you seen it yet? Yeah. Yeah. And it's both of these changes just are, are signs of impending failure of the nervous system. Yeah. So where you have these Doing that full separation, is that Cushing's triad? It's not Cushing's triad, but Cushing's syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Cushing's syndrome was whether they're different. Like, they're just like heavy. Cushing's triad. Cushing's triad. Cushing's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bradycardia hypertension. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. There's a cliff that is at the end of the Yes. Yes. So Cushing's triad may exacerbate on the other side of that? Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And what, what's the cause of the, the apnea to, to hyperventilation? Yeah, so yeah, so it's, it can be deep, it can just be shallow and rapid. Um, you know, the, it's, it's in part the way the neurons in that medulla interact with each other. They can't fire at the same time, and yet um, they will all eventually fatigue. And so I think it has to do, though I've never seen a clear explanation for this pattern, um, 
It has to do with the way they mutually inhibit each other and then their cycle of fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. What exactly am I looking at those squiggly lines? This is, actually this is actually tidal volume. So if you're on a spirometer, yeah, this is actually monitoring the movement of air. And every uptake is a... Inhalation, exhalation, and then a period of apnea. Yeah, that's actually pretty regular. And then it's my understanding the periods of apnea uh, lengthen out over time. Pardon me? Until you, Until you die. And then it's a very long period of apnea. Uh, fa facial, <laughs> facial trauma um, threatens the brain, uh, especially where the bones are relatively thin, so around the orbits, nasal, but more importantly behind that, the ethmoid bone. A lot of forces come to the face, even if you fall to the ground, kind of in, in an upward oblique angle, not straight on. Um, so oral cavity is in danger, um, and there's a lot of vasculature, sorry, in, in, the, in the face. Nasal cavity, the vomer is the uh, posterior portion of the bony nasal septum. Ethmoid provides the upper portion of the bony nasal septum. Nasal conchi, again, all those tissues bright red because they have so much blood flow, so bleeding and edema are serious concerns. Um, there are sinuses in the maxilla, in the frontal lobe, uh, above the brow, um, and then the ethmoid is full of tiny bubbles of sinuses. Um, hyoid bone, they don't show it in this figure, but the hyoid bone, remember, is that U-shaped bone that serves as the, it's a floating bone that serves as the attachment point for the tongue. And that can get fractured. Um, and then the larynx, the cartilages of the larynx are in the anterior neck. Um, most commonly fractured facial bones, as I mentioned before, nasal bones um, and the, especially the sutures. So you get a tripod fracture. So you fracture, you separate the zygoma, zygomatic bone from the frontal bone, from the maxilla, and from the um, zygomatic process of the temporal bone. A lot of nosebleeds are actually anterior nosebleeds. And this is just a little, uh, a little help, especially if there's been a blow to the nose. Notice that the arteries that supply the anterior nose for the most part are coming from the, uh, the beneath the nose, right? So pressure here, or if you can't put pressure and ice pack here to cause some vasoconstriction often goes a long way to prevent nosebleeds. I put this knowledge in action recently. I've been helping friends demo uh, the siding on their house and I was getting, I was down around the deck trying to get the last pieces and I was getting tired and I was getting lazy, and I was right in front <laughs> of where I was using the crowbar, and the crowbar broke, broke loose and bonked me right in the nose instead of working from the side, and just hit me right here and just oh, gushing. Yeah, so. Yep, yep. I won't do that again in the next week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so fractures involving the bones supporting the orbit are actually pretty common. Um, there's seven different bones, so a lot of those facial bones come together to form the bony orbit. And then you can also, with trauma to the orbit, of course you can have trauma to the eye as well. There's three layers in the wall of the eye. That outer protective layer is white because it's rich in collagen. That outer layer, the sclera, becomes transparent 
over the cornea, but it's still the same layer of the eye, and the only difference is the arrangement of collagen fibers so that light can pass through. But my point there is that this white outer covering rich in collagen fibers, and same thing with the cornea, is virtually avascular. So damage to this portion um, of the eye has a poor blood supply. You can get anaerobic infections like tetanus very easily as a result of injury to the cornea or to the sclera. So need to be up to date on your tetanus shot. It is. I think I mentioned it before. It's the only case of tetanus I've ever seen in my life is a corneal abrasion. Thwapped in the eye while on a hike, got treated for the corneal abrasion, developed tetanus on a ventilator for over 40 days. Oh, yeah. Boy. Yeah. Uh, the middle layer of the eye, wall of the eye, is the choroid layer. It's very vascular. Those blood vessels serve all of the tissues of the eye, but especially the retina. And the retina is the innermost, thinnest. I don't know if you remember dissecting the eyeball. It was a very flimsy yellow layer on the inside of the eye. Remember that? Yeah. So if someone has some facial trauma, um, and maybe some damage to the eye, whether you see it or not, what do you think would indicate, what would they report if they had some retinal damage? Uh, bubbles in their vision? So maybe distortion in their vision? Yep. Often they see light. They see flashes of light because the, that retina is all these sensory receptors that send information to the occipital lobe Occipital lobe sees light no matter how they're stimulated. So I had you push on your eye, right? And they will see stars, flashes of light as that retina is trying to, is floating away now from the wall of the eye. They'll be stimulated physically in the same way that you can physically stimulate those same receptors by pushing on your eyeball. So they'll report flashes of light. So then you know, right, if they're saying any kind of change in vision, but especially flashes of light, um, retinal detachment can be surgically repaired to preserve their sight, um, and so that's a good thing to note, but it also means there's been a pretty big insult. Maybe there's uh, orbit fractures that you haven't seen, too. We talked about nystagmus earlier. Is that a sign of eye injury, brain injury, or ear injury? Could be, although eye injuries all by themselves will not change uh, the movement of the skeletal muscles that move the eye so much, but it could be a cerebellar injury, right, which is coordinating the movement of these skeletal muscles, but it also could be an inner ear injury, so damaging the vestibular apparatus and sending the brain a false information about a sense of movement. And why is it that alcohol causes as well? Because it suppresses all kinds of normal neural processing, and so you just don't, you, you also can't control all your other skeletal muscles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have nystagmus, like, all the time. Like, like who's looking straight, even, yeah. So, like, on the peripherals, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so totally if, sober. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, Paul. Yeah. What's in that key? <laughs> a drunk person. You go a little bit further. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, anyone that does it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. My, my eyes twitch on the... Yeah. Did you ever have uh, head trauma? Yeah, well, that's probably why. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, it's gotten better. I think I told you this. I had horrible nystagmus so much that when I wash my face and close my eyes, I have to be leaning against the bathroom counter or I will, whew, 
Um, but it's gotten better since my neck surgery. So I had a lot of, I kept asking about this. Could my vertigo, um, and then the evidence of my vertigo is the nystagmus, um, could my vertigo be related to my neck injury? And they go, ah, no, I don't think so. But it totally did, because as soon as they fixed my neck, it went away. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I had, I tried to find my images because I thought you'd be interested, but I had several serious neck injuries beginning when I was a kid. My parents were terrible drivers. I was got into rollover accidents, horrible accidents, um, and then um, got run into on the soccer field, ruptured a disc. About five years later, got run into the soccer field, ruptured another disc. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and so my cervical spine just did this thing. I lost all my cervical curvature. I had some subluxation. And then arthritic changes compressed my cord to about half its normal width. So it went from like 11 millimeters to 5 millimeters. Um, and then I got a lot of radiculopathy too, which is eventually why I had the... So I had um, four vertebrae fused together in my neck. Yeah, um, because I ended up with a dead arm. But now I'm pretty much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the best. All done at once. It was really awful, and it took me about a year and a half to recover. Yeah, it was really, really hard, but it was worth it. Um, it doesn't look like much here, but this person has an orbital fracture. Starting to develop some edema here. Um, and in his upper eyelid, which is going to affect the way his eye looks down below also. Um, a lot of times with the forces involved in orbital fractures, it also stretches muscles and the ligaments associated with the extrinsic eye muscles that move the eye. So a lot of people will end up with, and I can't really tell, with double vision as well. Um, yeah, so orbital fractures may not present with a lot of bruising or swelling initially because there's not a lot of tissue here. Um, and especially if they remain upright, as soon as they lay down and water goes whoosh. Um, yeah, but a change in the way the, the eye is positioned is, um, is going to be a sign. Um, here's blood collecting in the anterior chamber, so in front of the iris. That's amazing. Yeah, and a globe rupture. And the only time I've seen a globe rupture is a poor farmer that kicked, got kicked by his horse. Oh. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Horses. Yep. Yep. The trigeminal nerve is the fifth cranial nerve. I know it's a weird picture, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so here are the locations where those three branches of the trigeminal nerve um, enters the face. So the trigeminal nerve, the fifth cranial nerve, and the seventh cranial nerve, the facial nerve, are the principal nerves of sensation and motor control over the face. Um, uh, and so all of these foramina are kind of in line. The, this uh, pupillary reflex um, is not so much the, uh, or the, rather the corneal reflex, not so much the trigeminal nerve, but still a sign of damage to um, the outlet or swelling around the outlet of the trigeminal nerve. Um, but sensation, loss of muscle tone um, could be, cortex, but could be, especially in trauma, um, the result of damage to the trigeminal nerve. Is the trigeminal nerve synonymous with the fifth yes. nerve? Yes. Yes. Why is that? Like, so that all, all of the cranial nerves have numbers, and they all have names. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. 
So, so, so olfactory is one, optic is two, ocular motor is three, and so on. Is this why the doctors when they're doing their neurological exams, they'll feel for sensation in those? And those three branches, yep, yep. And what's the uh, stroke mimic that um, you can test for, what, what do we call it again? What, what palsy? palsy? Oh. oh, the one half. And is that, that's why, because of this nerve, because if it's a stroke, they'll usually have control of their eyebrows, of their eyebrows ah. versus Bell's palsy, is that because Bell's palsy often affects the trigeminal nerve, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 good point. And what is the seventh nerve then? The facial nerve um, is also sensation and motor movement, but a little bit lower on the face and not in this really easily defined pattern, yeah. So Salivary glands, control of salivary glands, for example, is the facial nerve. So the naming is a little odd because it's not the whole face, but yeah, yeah. The trigeminal. So trigeminal means it has those three branches, and you can feel. You can feel at least. Well, sometimes you can feel, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but these are all the three branches of the trigeminal. Yeah, these, this is all trigeminal. So tri means three. So the trigeminal or fifth cranial nerve has three branches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here we're looking at that bony labyrinth that I mentioned before. So just inside the temporal bone is the bony housing for the hearing apparatus in the middle ear and the vestibular apparatus for balance and coordination, sending information to the cerebellum in the, in the inner ear, um, often falls to the back of the head, and you look for this, right? Um, uh, result in basilar skull fractures that can proceed into, so find your mastoid process here, right? So that's temporal bone and go up, you know, imagine up towards the ear canal and go in further and all of that is bony labyrinth. So you bonk on the back of your head and you can crack right through there. It's not uncommon for that break to dis, or that trauma to disrupt the middle ear bones so they'll not hear in that ear anymore. So during your interview, they'll, they'll likely say, I, I can't hear. Um, or they could actually disrupt the vestibular apparatus and or, and or knock off those Odorless, those things that add inertia to that fluid in that inner ear, and they'll have nystagmus. Um, if you do break into the, the bony labyrinth and into the cranial vault, uh, you'll likely tear the meninges, and then you'll see, right, all of this gets deranged, and a lot of times you'll see CSF coming out the ear canal, right? And how do you look for CSF? Yeah, so you're looking for the halo effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I've heard uh, of, and I haven't, I haven't seen this myself, is sometimes these fractures can affect um, the carotid artery, especially if you're talking about high impacts, you know, to the side panel of a car. They'll hit their head on the pillar um, or something else, and uh, they'll break there. And uh, I've heard people say they could hear blood rushing out of their carotid artery with every heartbeat. Yeah. Absolutely. I've seen CSF coming out of somebody's nose after their sinus surgery. That was a mistake. Mm -hmm. 
not supposed to happen. Yeah. And so fr front, you know, facial fractures like this, so injuries like this, especially when it comes up a little bit, it just shoves the ethmoid up through that very thin cribriform plate. That breaks pretty easily, tears the meninges, and CSF is running out their nose. Haloed. Oh, shit. And it's like a little bit of blood in the middle and then this halo around. Like, hmm, is that cerebral spinal fluid? Oh, no. <laughs> it turns out it was. So he was leaking cerebral spinal fluid after his sinus surgery onto our reports as he read Dang. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> So we talked about this already, that um, trauma to the face can result in disruption of those fibers that lead to the olfactory bulb and loss of um, sensation. But if you do damage to the base of the frontal lobe, um, that's where you interpret olfactory information so you can have a loss of, of olfaction there. Um, yeah, all righty. We're, we're almost done. Um, we talked last time about the, the neck triangles, and I don't know how much you infl Do you talk about neck triangles at all? Is it all part of your kind of orientation? So, so even if you're not tested on it, I, thi I think it's helpful to think about the difference between what's, you know, between the midline and that major belly of the sternocleidomastoid. So most of the structures here that you want to be concerned about in that anterior triangle in front of the sternocleidomastoids are major blood vessels and the vagus nerve, right? As well as respiratory structures. Here's the hyoid bone. Here's the, the internal jugular. This is the little wimpy external jugular. Here's the carotid. And it's going to bifurcate into internal and external right there, right about the level of the hyoid bone. And then the posterior neck triangle are mostly, I mean, if you get deep enough, you'll get into the subclavian, um, you know, uh, artery and vein, but most of these that you need to be concerned about are going to be nerves that supply a little bit of the cervical plexus, but mostly the brachial plexus, so a lot of the arm, right? And if you go, if it's this kind of thing or this kind of thing, you might actually damage the upper lobe of the lung as well. And yeah, since you're not trying to get into the internal jugular, right, you don't really need to know exactly how to palpate the the sternal versus the clavicular origins of the sternocleidomastoid, but yeah. But you might look for it if you ever watch anybody put an IJ in, in the ER. Yeah, yeah, you try to palpate there, yeah. You don't do it anymore. That's okay if you got IOs. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so ma major concerns here in the anterior triangle are airway structures and these major blood vessels. Yeah, posterior triangle, you know, less concern. So I guess that's a, a little bit of, you know, sigh of relief. If you can identify the sternocleidomastoid and look at the posterior triangle, yeah, there's damage there, but I'm far enough away from these major arteries and veins. Um, not going to hit the vagus nerve, but you might affect arm, you know, upper shoulder and things like that. Deltoid, you'll get a deltoid that doesn't work, for example. Um, yeah, so we won't, we won't do any more of that. So, <laughs> uh, so vertebral injury, 
begins with damage to the soft tissues that help hold those uh, vertebrae aligned with each other, including the intervertebral discs and major ligaments that run uh, in superior and inferiorly, both on the anterior surface especially, um, anterior surface of the bodies of the vertebrae, but also posteriorly holding those spinous processes aligned. But if you damage those soft tissues and or the muscle um, or the bone, then you risk um, not only the spinal cord, which is, I mean, I don't know if you pictured what 11 millimeters looks like in the cervical spine, which is actually a pretty big area of the spine, of the spinal cord. Um, but the spinal cord really is not much bigger than your thumb, right? So it's not very big. Um, in the vertebral column, it's surrounded by those same meninges, but the dura mater does not adhere to the bone. So you've got this epidural fat uh, between the dura mater and the bone so that the spinal cord can move as you move your vertebral column. Um, also at risk are the spinal nerves that leave through the intervertebral foramina. And again, it's both somatic nervous system and autonomic nervous system that leave through those foramina, sensory and motor for both divisions. Um, lots of mechanisms uh, in terms of damage to the vertebral column. Um, do you, can you identify which uh, type of vertebrae this is? This is a cervical. It's a cervical because it has these transverse foramina. So foramina in the transverse processes. Yeah. So, I mean, have you? And I think you've seen cervical vertebrae. I mean, the spinal cord is much smaller than that opening. Much smaller. So all the potential mechanisms, hyperextension, hyperflexion, rotation, compression, distraction, penetrating. Yeah. I, rem I was working or edema, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that, I mean, I will never forget. It's, it's autonomic dysregulation because um, the sympathetic reflexes all take place in the thoracic area of the cord. Um, cranial and sacral reflexes are parasympathetic. So if you disconnect the sympathetic reflex centers in the spinal cord from the home of sympathetic responses, those reflexes go unchecked so you, and, and are without regulation. So they often have difficulty regulating their body temperature because they can't connect the vasomotor center in their brainstem with the sympathetic pathways that go to blood vessels. And blood vessels are almost exclusively innervated by the sympathetic nervous system, except for the blood vessels of the genital organs for erection. So. Um, that's parasympathetic. Um, yeah. Um, and what was the other thing you said besides thermoregulation? Oh, and blood pressure for the same reason. Yeah, yeah, for the same reason. Blood pressure for the same reason, because you've you've disconnected the vasomotor control center from the actual sympathetic motor fibers that go out to the to the blood vessels. So then you're relying on local control, which is going to be disorganized. Are we back to morning wood then? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> probably. Probably as a, a, a good rest. Yeah. Yeah. If you're um, 
like a quadriplegic, you're you're put in a wheelchair at usually a certain elevation to control yeah, yeah, yeah. your blood pressure because your body doesn't yes. have the ability to do it anymore. Yeah. Are they're typically more hypotensive than hypertensive. Right, right? because they have very poor preload. So, so what Rob was talking about, do you remember talking about Christopher Reeves? He was reclined about 30 degrees in his wheelchair because if he was sat straight up, he did not get enough venous return. He'd pass out. So um, because you need your respiratory pump and your skeletal muscle pump to get blood back to the heart. Um, there's a little bit of suction action when the ventricles relax. Um, but if he was upright, that would not be enough to get blood up from his lower extremities because he was, has positive pressure breathing, right? He was on a ventilator on his chair. So they'd recline him a little bit. Um, so that's mostly about getting venous return and not distribution of blood. And the ventilation from the ventilator becomes their primary pumping mechanism. Yeah, but it's positive pressure. Pump. It's a positive pressure pump, not a negative oh, pressure okay. pump like normal breathing is. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I told you this too. The worst thing, I, I never imagined this before, but a friend of my uh, sister's dove off a boat, advantage, broke his neck, cardiac arrest, survived the cardiac arrest, but it was a high level like C2 fracture. Um, and uh, so he was on a ventilator for a long time. The worst part about weaning him off the ventilator is he could not feel himself breathe. So he didn't know whether he was breathing or not. So that's why weaning him off the ventilator took a long time because he would become petrified um, and couldn't voluntarily control his breathing, but also couldn't feel whether or not he was breathing. So he did eventually breathe on his own. He did. He, he, he still can't feel himself breathing. He's still alive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can have mechanical energy, uh, injury to the spinal cord, of course, or the nerves leaving the spinal cord, and then you'll have further bleeding and edema. The location, uh, meaning the level in the, along the vertebral column, determines the effects on function. And your book has a table. I didn't think it was worth um, just displaying the table again. I think what's most important, and maybe you've heard this, it's not that the nerves um, from all of these levels innervate the diaphragm via the phrenic nerve. But if you have a fracture of the cervical spine anywhere, including C5 or above, you're gonna compromise control over those nerves that go to the diaphragm and external intercostals for breathing. So uh, C, it's usually C3 through C5 keeps the diaphragm alive for breathing. Um, the, the cranial nerve that carries most of parasympathetic impulses is which nerve? What, what, what nerve carries most of parasympathetic information to the heart, to bronchial passages? 10, which is the vagus nerve, which leaves the medulla. So again, if you have a high level cord injury, the parasympathetic nervous system will be left intact, but the sympathetic nervous system will be removed, um, except for local control. And it means you don't have that normal balance for homeostasis that you would have. And the reason for that is because the nerve exits the column and so the cr cranial nerve leaves through the cranium. So any C-spine injury is not going to affect the, the vagus nerve unless it's also in the anterior neck triangle. Gotcha. Yeah. So neurogenic... Oh, vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. Did I say it wrong? Ten tenth cranial nerve is the vagus nerve. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so with neurogenic shock, we hear a lot about bradycardia um, um, and that kind of sign of the parasympathetic. Do you also get sludgum? your salivation, lacrimation, urination, 
deprecation, you get that aspect as well? I, am, I imagine so, but I can't, I can't say that for sure. And I'm not sure if that would be an early, an early sign so that you would see it in the field. That's usually uh, um, uh, uh, signs of like cholinesterase inhibitor uh, exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if you would see all those if you had an overactive parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah, but you would, you would see the inability to control blood pressure well through vasodilation, vasoconstriction. Um, yeah. And a decreased ability to elevate heart rate because the sympathetic nervous system is removed. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah? Good. Thank you very much. How long does the... Uh...